Eames. Yeah. Eames, my, my podcast co-host James is off sick again today, so I need somebody else to schwabble with. Oh, okay. So we can uh, we can do some schwabbling. <laughs> Eames, yeah. where where does the word schwabble come from? I think it's a I think it's a Yiddish word. It could originate, you know, so Yiddish is a combination of Hebrew and German. I think it's some kind of a German origin, but mm-hmm. I'm not quite so sure. You know the Scottish word for schwabble? No. Blether. Oh. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Schwabble and blether. We can start a, uh, a Yiddish-Scotch dictionary. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm for that. That'll Definitely. keep us busy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yeah. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon. My usual co-host and partner in crime, James Palmer, is out sick again today, and we're crossing our fingers that he has just a regular cold bug and not the coronavirus. And hopefully he'll be back with us shortly. On today's episode, I'm going to look at how authoritarian leaders in Eastern Europe and Eurasia are using the pandemic as an excuse to crack down. Later, I'll be joined by Daniel Balson, Amnesty International USA's Advocacy Director for Europe and Central Asia. But first this. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now, FP is offering Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. On Monday, the Hungarian parliament voted to give Prime Minister Viktor Orban special powers to rule by decree, effectively giving him the right to single-handedly run the country indefinitely. And that's not all. Under the new law, people who spread false information about the pandemic could face a prison sentence of up to five years. And while disinformation is really dangerous in the midst of a public health crisis, many advocates fear that this new law will be used to target journalists critical of the government. But Viktor Orban is not the only leader in Eastern Europe to seize upon the pandemic as a way to shore up his power. To discuss this, I spoke over Skype to Daniel Balson, Amnesty International USA's Advocacy Director for Europe and Central Asia. So in response to the pandemic, a lot of democratic countries have resorted to measures that just a few months ago would have seemed unthinkable, like closing businesses, postponing elections, using cell phone data to track people's movements. But what, in your view, is different about the law which was passed in Hungary on Monday? This is a problem, and I think it's a problem for two reasons. Uh, There's a proximate problem, which is the legal threat incumbent in this to critics, uh, and a lot of folks are rightly focusing on this proximate problem. Um, There's no sunset clause to this state of emergency rule by decree. It could conceivably last forever. Uh, There's no additional requirements for parliamentary review. Um, And then, of course, there is this 
implicit issue of jailing people. Um, that's important because for however bad and nasty um, autocracy in Hungary or um, uh, consolidated authoritarianism in Hungary has gotten in recent years, Hungary's a, a member of several sort of international architecture blocks, such as the European Union and NATO, that have really put the brakes on Orban's ability to throw folks in jail who say things he doesn't like. Um, these two new crimes about the first about fake news and the second interfering with a quarantine um, at least create a very convenient vehicle for the government to, to do just that, whether they will or will not remains to be seen. But that's really just a proximate problem. There's a longer term and insidio more insidious, I would argue, problem that I think not enough folks are talking about, and that's that this is really about delegitimizing critics of the government in Hungary. So essentially what you have is the government, as in many other um, authoritarian spaces and spaces where uh, human rights are violated, uh, using these pretenses uh, for power grabs. So the goal here is very much the same. It's to delegitimize the opposition. And by that, I don't mean just the political opposition. I mean civil society, media, anybody who Orban considers to be a part of the opposition by essentially saying, wait, you're opposed to this emergency rule. You must be in league with COVID-19. You are. You don't care that you know your grand, our grandmothers and um, uh, frail family members will fall ill. You are. You know. You will just stop at nothing to oppose me. Um, and that's really the narrative that the government has been pumping out. Another thing we've seen is that in some Chinese propaganda outlets and even in some articles in the Western press. There's been suggestions that China's authoritarian style of governance has enabled it to overcome the huge outbreak that they, of coronavirus cases that they saw earlier this year. And Eurasia, the region that you follow, has no shortage of authoritarian governments, unfortunately. I mean, are they proving to be more effective in their response to the pandemic? In the region that I work on in Eurasia, like any other region, uh, countries, whether they be um, more pluralistic, less pluralistic, have to contend uh, with a host of issues. In many cases, that's issues like bureaucratic sclerosis, power rivalries, um, geopolitical tensions. Uh, so what this has functionally meant is that, you know, many of the countries that we're referring to in the region, such as Azerbaijan, Belarus, Turkey, uh, they face a range, their leadership faces a range of incentives, they have a range of experiences and a range of tools, and these rules of the game aren't really suspended in a time of crisis. Uh, so what that means is that many of these states have operated uh, exactly as they have in the past, only more so in times of crisis. I mean, looking at Azerbaijan, the government has always been very keen to jail its critics. Um, they've continued uh, along those lines during the coronavirus crisis. So you have, you know, Aliyev coming out and saying that he's going to, uh, trying to burnish his image, saying that he's going to be donating his salary to the fight against coronavirus. Obviously, the corruption within the Azerbaijani government is very well documented and um, uh, there's, uh, I was joking that there's no word about whether money that's stashed abroad will be donated mm -hmm. as well. But um, Aliyev just recently had a, gave this sort of big speech where he accused the opposition of being a fifth column, saying that we're going to have to isolate them, implying that they're diseased. Um, and then subsequently word became deed, as it so often does with these governments, uh, a very 
prominent opposition leader Taufik Yagublu was arrested on the 22nd of this month. He, after a car accident, was charged with hooliganism. Uh, Belarus is another interesting case. It was famously referred to by, I believe, Condoleezza Rice as Europe's last dictatorship. Uh, to date, Lukashenko has greeted COVID-19 with a great big yawn. Be uh, Belarus Premiership is uh, one of the few uh, premier football leagues still open in uh, across Europe. Uh, one of the few top football leagues still open and soccer leagues still open across Europe. Uh, folks are attending it. There are photos of these stadiums you know, that are quite packed. Uh, Turkey is an interesting place as well. Uh, you have the parliament working on a law to free folks in prison since the failed 2016 coup attempt. Turkey's uh, prisons have been um, stunningly overcrowded by people uh, facing really a wide swath of charges. But the interesting thing about this parliamentary effort now is that government critics such as Osman Kavala, um, such as Amnesty International staff, uh, mm -hmm. because they face quote unquote terrorism charges are not included. And it's important to emphasize that really many of these people who are facing government, um, uh, uh, who are in prison on politically motivated charges in Turkey are over the age of 60. You know, they fall into this demographic that is particularly at risk of infection, um, of severe infection under coronavirus. Uh, so for the government to simply not include them shows that it's really more of the same. They don't view the coronavirus as you know, a need to change course. Do you think it's fair to say in Eurasia that authoritarian leaders have responded to the crisis by doubling down on the things that have made them authoritarian in the very first place? I, I think that they've responded by... Um, uh, I think that they've responded by really drawing on the things that they view as the sources of their power and the threats to their power. Leaders who view, you know, certain constituencies, whether they be clan-based, religious-based, um, uh, politically rooted, rooted in certain business um, uh, groupings, uh, they've begun to respond to those constituencies even more. In a lot of ways, coronavirus has merely accelerated um, and strengthened the power of um, the various incentives that leaders across the region face. Interesting. Like the, um, what's the saying? If, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. That's exactly right. And so overall, based on what we know now about the trajectory of the coronavirus, where do you think this is going to leave Eastern Europe and Eurasia in terms of democracy or, author or authoritarianism? One of the challenges really that we're seeing now is there's not a lot of reasons for optimism. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is uh, that coronavirus will not be with be the kind of threat that it is today forever. Uh, it may not feel that way now, but you know as we scroll panic scroll through our Twitter feeds as, you know, we follow the news, as um, uh, we speak to our neighbors. Uh, it may feel that this will be ubiquitous and permanent, but that's really not the case. But a lot of these structural changes that are happening in Eurasia are ubiquitous and uh, or may well be ubiquitous and permanent. Uh, and I would love to leave your listeners with a note of optimism. Unfortunately, there's simply not much evidence for it at this juncture. Yikes. So the, the side effects of coronavirus could last much longer than the pandemic itself. I think that's a fabulous way of putting it. Mm. That was Daniel Balson of Amnesty International speaking over Skype.
If you're looking to learn more about some of the topics we discussed on the podcast today, head over to farmpolicy.com and look for today's podcast page, where I've included some links in the show notes. Hopefully James will be back with us soon, as two is always better than one. Until then, drop me a line at don'ttouchyourface at farmpolicy.com. Tell me what you think of the show, send in your questions, concerns, or ideas for future guests or episodes. That's it for today. I'm Amy McKinnon. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands and don't touch your face.